chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, we continue our studies on this marvelous, thrilling, exciting book of Revelation. And I, it's amazing how the Lord knows ahead of time what's going to take place. And I think it's very timely that we are considering the prophecies of the book of Revelation, especially now that all of the eyes of all the world are turned on the Middle East. And I do not think that is by accident nor coincident, but I believe truly with all my heart, uh, the Lord is just uh, uh, setting the stage for some of the great events that are about to transpire and take place. Oh, may God wake us up, folks, to help us realize uh, that the Lord's warning us ahead of time uh, to be ready for his coming. And certainly that moment of rapture for his church that could occur at any given moment, any given moment, the Lord could call out of this world the born again believer. And uh, so uh, we, need to be, uh, we need to be sincere and we need to be dead set and sure that we're ready for the things that are soon to come upon this earth. Revelation chapter 6, we'll begin this morning in chapter 9 and read down through verse 11 and also from verse 12 down through verse 17. And if we have the time, I think I shall just read verse 9 through 11. It deals with the fifth seal that is to be broken. And then if we have the time, we'll deal with the sixth seal. But here in chapter 6 of the Revelation, you'll remember last Lord's Day if you were here, we dealt with the four horsemen of Revelation. We dealt primarily that on Sunday night. Didn't have time to finish it all, I think. But nonetheless, we had chapter 6. We found where the Lamb of God has now taken into his hand the scroll of chapter, that's spoken of in chapter 4, the seven-sealed scroll. And where you find in our English translation of the word book, it is better understood as scroll. We can get a better mental picture of it like that. And so it is a scroll that was sealed seven, with seven particular seals. And I tried to impress upon you uh, not to think of a scroll rolled up and then seven seals along uh, the, uh, the enclosure. But the Roman seal was, uh, was on this fashion. A part of the scroll was written if it was a will. And then a, a seal was placed and another blank space there. The fellow wrote in some more and then he sealed it again until there were seven seals. So with each opening uh, or with every opening of every seal, we find in chapter 6 that there is a certain thing that transpires. And let me remind you again that this scroll apparently is the title deed to this world. If you remember some weeks ago, I talked to you on the subject, who owns this world anyway? Who owns this world anyway? And we found that the Lord Jesus is the rightful owner, the Lamb, not only by right of creation, but by right of redemption. The Lamb of God who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. We found too in our little illustration, let me just briefly remind you of that, 
of that fellow who, uh, who now uh, has purchased a property on what is today, August the what? This 26th? Uh, this, y'all know any more than I do, do you? It's 26. And uh, so uh, we said uh, the man makes the purchase on the 26th of August and uh, he buys the property. Uh, it is his, but now he does not take possession of it until November the 1st. But he, we remember we had an old squatter, a renter on that piece of property that is owned by the man. And uh, he goes out, comes the uh, 1st of November to claim his property, but the old squatter is unwilling to, uh, to move. And so uh, uh, the man has no other choice, but he goes back to the court and there he uh, acquires the legal documents necessary. And along with that, he takes the sheriff and the law officer with him and they go out to evict the old squatter from the property. Uh, but the old squatter is not willing to leave yet. So a fight ensues, some windows broken, chickens are killed, grass torn up, maybe the fence broken down, and finally the old squatter is evicted after the struggle, and the man moves in. Now here is the illustration, what we're illustrating. This world belongs to our God by right of creation, but now it is his as well by right of the purchase price the shedding of his blood, it is his by right of redemption. But in this world and over this world system is the old squatter, the God of this world, uh, Satan, the adversary whom, uh, to whom Adam handed over the rightful uh, rulership of this planet earth. And so the old squatter is on the property. But the man now goes to have, that, have him removed. He is unwilling to do so. And so there, the fight ensues. Now, Revelation chapter 6 through 19 is parallel with that struggle that goes on. The old squatter is going to be evicted along with all those who follow with him. All of those who oppose God, all of those who have rejected our Lord will be evicted with him. And so the great judgments in Revelation 6 through 19 are those judgments that God permits to come and sins upon this earth in order to reclaim the property and to set up his kingdom that he had promised through his prophets centuries ago and he will come and rule and reign on this earth a thousand years and we call that the millennial reign of Christ. And on our chart, we have it designated as the Messiah's kingdom. And that's talked about in Revelation chapter 20. And so we find that here in chapter 6 is the beginning of the opening of those seals of that document, the title deed to this earth. And as each seal is opened, a great thing occurs on this earth. Now back in chapter 6 at verse 1 and 2, we saw the rider on the white horse. Let me remind you, that is not the Lord Jesus. Altogether different than that picture drawn of him in chapter 19 and verse 11, where the Lord Jesus comes on the white horse. He has upon his head a crown written upon his vesture, the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6, 1 and 2 has simply a bow and a crown. I pointed out to you that the word crown, Stephanos, and the word diadema, two words translated crown. This crown is the word Stephanos, that it is a victor's crown. 
but the diadema is the crown that our Lord wears. It is a kingly crown. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Now, the rider of the white horse in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 6, we saw as the Antichrist, the one of whom the scripture speaks about, calls him the lawless one. Uh, the beast uh, that rises up and gains control uh, over the nations and uh, demands that men have a mark in the forehead uh, or in their hand uh, or else they will not be able to even buy nor sell. Now you find in verse 1 and 2 that here the writer comes in the sense of imitation. The devil's chief mode of operation is imitation. He wants to be like the most high. So he comes now with a bow, no arrow, offering peace to the world, making a covenant with Israel and assuring them of safety that they can resume their, uh, their mode of worship in the temple. And by the way, uh, though I don't have time to enlarge on this, it's interesting to note how Jewish desire in Israel is being so outspoken as to the rebuilding of their temple. And there will be a temple rebuilt during that tribulation period for Israel will again have restored their old mode of worship in the temple. And it's interesting to read the comments from the Jerusalem Post and other magazines and articles even here in the States of the great interest in the Jews' heart and mind and already many implements in the museum of the temple uh, that are, are relics that will be placed in that temple and it's going to come to pass. Those things again are not coincidence, folks. They are in fulfillment of the prophecy of the reliable, unerring, infallible word of God. And so then here, uh, this uh, writer comes in and says, I don't want to spend too much time there. The second writer came following that, and he was on a red horse, which we found spoke of war. Peace was taken for the earth. The Antichrist comes offering peace, and then he interrupts at three and a half years, and all hell breaks loose on this earth. War, such as man has never known before, and peace will be taken from the earth. The third rider comes in verse 5 and 6, and he rides upon a black horse, which we saw was an indication of famine. Famine always follows war. It is, it, is, it, is, uh, it is the uh, uh, consequence of war. Uh, there is a shortage of food. The government takes a, a charge and they ration out food as is noticed in verse 5. He that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. A measure of wheat, verse 6 says, for a penny. That is a full day's wage. Just, a, uh, just enough for a man's assess. Take a whole day's earnings of yours to buy but a measure, a pint of wheat. And three measures, which is a cheaper grain of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and wine. We saw in that last Sunday night an expression of the mercy of God. Even in judgment, he remembers mercy. Oil and wine in the time of our Lord was a, was a remedial, a medicinal type of substance. Uh, the, the thief, uh, the man robbed of the thieves on the road to Jericho was left lying, dying, and the Smyrna came by and poured in oil and wine. And even Paul writes to Timothy and said, uh, take a drink no longer water, but take a little wine for your stomach's sake, for thine oft infirmities. 
And I've met some people who kind of misinterpret that verse and they'd like to say, well, I got stomach trouble all the time, so I'll just drink like a fish. Yeah, and you'll wind up in the alcohol home too, I'll guarantee you that. But you're welcome. But anyway, uh, here's the third beast. And then look at verse seven through eight. And here comes the fourth beast. And his rider upon him, uh, behold, a pale horse. And the name that sent him is death and hell followed. Uh, the word of hell is the word of Hades, the realm of the dead. Power was given to him to over fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. We saw where billions on this earth will die as a result of, of this uh, uh, rider on the uh, fourth beast. Now, Set all that to bring us to verse 9. And here we find the opening of the fifth seal. There's seven in all, and here's the fifth. Now follow, if you have a Bible, please follow me and uh, watch carefully. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar that is in heaven the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Now, could I make this statement before we begin to look at this? Chapter 7, that we'll not have time to deal with very much this morning. Chapter 7 is a parenthetical chapter. I mean by that, it is additional information that is given to us as to what is said here in chapter 6. It is a parenthesis, you know what I'm talking about. So it is additional information that gives further light on what's happening and what will happen, especially in the opening of this fifth seal. And so you'll see that as well as perhaps the sixth seal, but primarily the fifth. Now then, there are at least four things of importance that I want you to take note of that are found in verse 9, 10, and 11. Four things. Jot them down, if you will. And if you don't, I want to assure you, you're not going to remember all of them. Uh, you're, you're, they're going to slip from you. That's the reason I keep insisting, be handy with a pen and with a piece of paper or a shirt sleeve or the palm of your hand. Jot a word or two down or the devil will steal it from you. I promise you that. Now, four things. I want you to notice, first of all, the souls, S-O-U-L-S, souls. Notice, secondly, the supplication, the supplication. Notice, thirdly, the slain, and if you will, fifthly, the solace, the solace. I mean by that, the rest, the comfort. So there are four words, all alliterated, so we can remember them a little easier. All right, let's look first at verse 9. The souls of those who are seen under the altar. Now, where are these souls that are under the altar? I said in just reading by, this is a scene in heaven. At the altar in the very presence of God in heaven itself. Now, these, uh, uh, this altar in heaven are this, well, maybe I should ask you to turn back to Re uh, Hebrews chapter 9. I want to show you something here. The temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament was but a replica 
apparently, of that that is in heaven. And we've already seen a throne. We have seen uh, altars. We have seen the worship. We have seen the uh, heavenly beings uh, and so forth. But I want you to look in chapter 9, and you'll notice this. Beginning, uh, let's see, at verse, uh, uh, well, let's look back up to uh, verse 20. Verse 20 of chapter 9. I want you to pay very careful attention to this. I want to tell you something that's very important. Saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. Now watch. It was therefore necessary, expedient, that the pattern, knows that word, that the pattern of things in, in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now what he's saying is this. In the Old Testament, these things were purified by the shedding of the blood of the sacrificial animals. We find that they were only typical of the coming Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, who would shed His blood on the cross. All right, watch what happens. Verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. That is, like Moses those who constructed the tabernacle, Solomon, who constructed the tabernacle, then enter there, which are the figures, they are but figures of the true, that is, figures of the real. For, but into, here's where he went, when he shed his blood, the priest had to offer the blood, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now watch what he does. Not yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered from the foundation of the world. But watch. But now, once in the end of the world, of the age, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What is it that remits sin? It is the blood of Christ. Is that not what the scriptures already said to us? And as it appointed unto men once to die, so after that to judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now, I don't know how you believe, but I believe that our Lord offered literally his precious blood on the altar in the heavens above. Now, some would say that is not essential. I don't know what you think. It matters little difference. But I believe there's firm evidence from this passage of the scripture that the shed blood of Jesus Christ was essential in the offering at the altar of God in heaven itself for the pattern of things that are seen down here. Here is the truth. This is but the, the thing that has been constructed from that that God has offered. So where are these souls? They're at that altar in the very presence of God there before the Lord. Now, it is evident here at verse 9 that these were the souls of them, watch, that were slain for the word of God. Now, I believe that these souls include 
Not only those who will be saved in the tribulation period, but undoubtedly also include Old Testament saints who have been martyred for their testimony. Now, I have reason to believe that as I look in Luke chapter 11 at verse number 50 and 51. Turn quickly, if you will. Luke 11, verse 50 and verse 51. And Jesus here is talking about what has happened to the prophets. At verse 49 of Luke 11, Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I'll send the prophets and apostles, and some of them shall, they shall slay and persecute. Now watch verse 50. That the blood of all the prophets, all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say to you, it shall be required of this generation or of this people. So here's the reason I personally believe that not only the tribulation saints who have been martyred and slain for their testimony, but also here are the souls of the Old Testament saints who have been slain because of their witness, their faithfulness to God, and their crying out unto the Lord. Now that brings us to verse 10, and we look at the supplication. And I use the term supplication here for the prayer that indeed they're offering up to God. And notice what a strange prayer it is to those of us in this day of grace. And I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge, bring vengeance for us on our blood on them that dwell on the earth. Now the language of their request sounds strange to those of us who have been taught of Christ in this age of grace. It's just a language that is foreign to what you and I have been taught. In other words, these are praying, and you know what they're calling for? For vengeance. They're not calling for mercy. They're not calling for forgiveness. They're calling for vengeance. And you'll find, our Lord, you remember our Lord Jesus in that most crucial hour of agony when he was hanging on the cross, yet he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In other words, he is our pattern. When, when Stephen was stoned to death, being stoned to death, he looked up into heaven and he said, Father, don't lay, the, lay not this sin to their charge. In other words, Stephen was doing what we're all taught to do as Christians, and that is to forgive those who wrong us, to forgive our enemies, to do good unto those who do not love us and who despitefully use us. But you'll notice this, that here is expressed the attitude of Old Testament saints as well as tribulation martyrs. They are expressing their desire for vengeance. Now, you must remember that we're here now at this point under what we'd call the dispensation of judgment. And these are offering their prayer according to the ruling dispensation of that particular period. The Old Testament is not, it is not uncommon to find in the Old Testament requests for vengeance. But we come to the New Testament. And we find that the Lord Jesus teaches us to deal differently with people. He said, if a man smites on one cheek, turn the other. 
He said, do good to those who despitefully use it. Forgive those who are enemies. Love those and so forth. But here, these are praying under a dispensation of judgment and they're asking for vengeance. Their cry for vengeance is, re- is a reminder of those psalms, and perhaps you're familiar with this term, perhaps you're not, but it'll be a good one to remember. Uh, those psalms that are called imprecatory psalms. That is, they're prayers that are prayed for vengeance. And such psalms as Psalm 74, verse 9 and 10. Psalm 79, verse 5, uh, Psalm 89, and verse 46, Psalm 94, verse 3 and 4, you'll find imprecatory statements, that is, prayers for vengeance, prayers that God will break the arm and and, uh, break the teeth of the enemy. And so we find these in this period are praying for vengeance. Y'all following me? Not yet, like that. You following me? Come on, not yet now. If not, I'm going to crank up all over again and uh, do it from the start. I knew you would. You're always cooperative. Now, the Christian is taught simply in this day, what? That vengeance belongs to God. Romans 12, verse 19. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Now, vengeance, for those who have offended us, takes several forms. It can take a physical form. Somebody offends you and you beat the daylights out of him. That's vengeance. There's another form of vengeance, and that's emotional vengeance. We do something to inflict emotional hurt, anything we can, to inflict misery in the feelings of someone else. That's another form of vengeance. There's another form of vengeance, and that's mental vengeance. Uh, We we say things to, to just confuse the mind, to make the person somehow confused in his life. And that's a, that's a form of vengeance. Then I guess I'll add there's another type, and that's mouth vengeance. Oh, buddy, that's tough, isn't it? I mean, you get a tongue lashing, a sc- tongue scalding, or, or you know, uh, whatever. But, that's but you know what the Bible teaches us in this age of grace? Vengeance is mine. Leave that to God. If you're doing right, leave the vengeance to God. He'll square the deal. Our problem is we just don't have enough patience to wait for that. But I'll guarantee you, you try to settle a score and you're going to mess up every time. But you let God settle a score and it'll really be settled. Just let him take care of it. And so whatever comes, that's, that's what we're taught in the scripture. So the judgment throne is now set, however. And at this, in this particular time, these who are persecuted, these persecuted believers, uh, Jews primarily undoubtedly in the tribulation, they are now praying rightly for vengeance to come. Now notice what happens in response to their supplication. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, and there were given to them white robes, every one of them. Now the Lord didn't immediately answer. He just simply gave them a token to say, you are my redeemed ones and rest assured that what's mine, I'll take rightful care of. And you don't have to worry about that. If you belong to God, listen, God's going to take care of you. Uh, He may not do it like you think you ought to do it, but I guarantee if you belong to God, you've been faithful to him, God's promise it'll take care of. Now, let's go to the third fact. Notice, if you will, the slain. We've looked at the souls that are under the altar, Old Testament as well as tribulation saints. We've looked at their supplication, their prayer. They're praying for vengeance. Now, if you will, look at the slain who are here. These are what we call martyrs, martyrs. 
Now, what is a martyr? Is a martyr someone who dies? Is that a martyr? That's not a martyr. A lot of folks die and they're not martyrs. A martyr is someone who dies for a cause. A martyr is one who dies for a cause. Now, there are two reasons these are slain. Look at them. The scripture says, for the word of God. Now, these were people who undoubtedly, we could say, believed in the authoritative, infallible, verbally inspired, unerring word of God. They believed the word of God and would not deny their belief in that word. Do you realize today, folks, we are living in an age that is continuously increasing in its hostility to the word of God? Never before have you evidenced such hostility to the word of God. Oh, how men hate the word of God. They'd like to rewrite it. They'd like to reinterpret it. They'd like to do everything they can to the word of God. Men, listen. If you talk about the Bible as just another book of philosophy, you can kind of get along with the world. Uh, if you're a politician and just quote a little verse every once in a while to help your uh, votes, you know, that's all right. That doesn't hurt anything. But if you stand up and say, listen, and I, uh, if, you want, if you want to find out what I mean, you students in school, and I wouldn't, I'm not recommending you do this, but if you really want to find out, why don't you stand up in class someday when something mentioned about the Bible and say, listen, I want you to understand, I believe the inspired, infallible, unerring word of the living God. You know what you're going to get? You're going to get all the scorn you can imagine. Now, if you don't believe that, you try it. Next day, tomorrow, when you go to work, I double dog dare you to try it if you don't believe what I'm saying. Tell people what you believe about the Bible that you believe it is the infallible, inspired word and record of God given to men. It is the final record of God. If you don't believe this world is hostile to his word, you try it. Men hate this book. Out in California last week or maybe it was week before, they had an arts festival, music festival. And you know what they're going to do for the climax? They asked people to bring in all the Bibles that they could find if they stole them from the churches, from their parents, from anybody else. Bring them in and pile them up and they were going to burn the Bibles. Now he said, that's just a little kid's trick. No, I want to tell you something. It's the undercurrent of hostility to the blessed word of God. Look at our school systems today. You try to read the Bible in the classroom today. See where it gets you. You try to talk about even God, much less talk about the Bible. The whole story is there is a hostility that is continuously increasing. You know what is? And listen, this National Endowment of the Arts that had that, uh, I wouldn't even, in this audience, I wouldn't, it is too embarrassing, I wouldn't even give the title that that artist, so-called artist gave of uh, the cross encased in a, in a glass container of urine. I wouldn't even give you the title. And yet again, you see that kind of hostility. And people, people listen, they applaud that kind of junk. And even in rock music today, the rap music and so forth, all of the hostility that's being born and poured out and vomited out upon the word of God, all of the attempts to discredit the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know what that is? It's hatred of the word of God. 
And in this day, listen, in this time, there will be those who say, if they stand aside, believe the Bible to be the word of God. Listen, they are not going to be thrown out of school and maybe fired from their job and scorned by the community, but they will literally be slain because they've stood for the word of God. And would you believe this, that even in your century and mine, people have died on this planet earth because they believe the word of God and would not deny it. In China, in the Far East, in other countries, men and women have died, martyred in our day because they simply said, I believe this book to be the word of God. And then, not all that, but he said, and listen, let me tell you this. You know the reason men hate the Bible? Because the Bible tells the truth about men. And men don't want to see the truth. The Bible tells man he's a sinner. A man just wants to say, well, I made a mistake or, or, or two. God said, you're a sinner. You've broken the law of God. You've sinned. The, uh, we don't like to think, of, oh, men will think about Jesus, a great philosopher, a great teacher, a great example. But don't call him God. Don't talk about him being born of that ridiculous thing called the virgin birth. And so men hate the word of God. But look, look here, not only for that, but for their testimony. Now, these people were witnesses and for the testimony which they have. In other words, they were not silent believers. They stood up. And it's evidence you're going to see in this book of Revelation. Those who do not receive the mark of the beast, literally, listen, there are those who stood up and said, we believe in Jesus Christ. We will not deny him. We stand firm upon his faith. We've put our trust and our confidence in him. And the Bible tells us that testimony. I think of Revelation 12 and verse 11. What a verse that is. The 12th chapter 11th verse. And the scripture said they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Listen to this. And they love not their lives unto the death. I, I seriously doubt if there's a very large percent of professed Christians in America who could really say that. If it came to sacrificing your life for your testimony of being a Christian, I wonder, I wonder about me. I wonder, would we stand the test? The day may come. The day may come, maybe within this decade, that you may be called upon to either deny the testimony you've given by saying you're a Christian, denying that you even know the Lord Christ. You listen, it doesn't take much to defeat us anyhow. Just somebody disagree with us, stick your tongue out of us, out at us, don't like us, ignore us, and we're ready to throw in the towel. But these people, you know what they said? Didn't even love their lives. They didn't, Paul, I like what Paul said. He said, I count not my life dear. Why? He said, that's not the precious thing to me. The most precious thing to me is Jesus not my life, what I live or die makes little difference for, to, be, for to me to live is Christ. But yet he said to die is gains that I can't, I can't lose, living or dying. Hallelujah. And you can't either if you're a child of God. You can't lose. And yet these kind of, oh, how precious our life is to us. More precious often than the testimony that we ought to have for Christ. Well, let me close. It's dinner time and your stomach's growling. Look at verse 11. The, the solace. Yeah, I heard that. Verse 11, uh, here the solace that he's talking about is that rest, that rest. Now notice what he says. Let me turn to you and find it for, right quick. And verse, uh, verse 11, and white robes are given unto every one of them. You see, this is after their request. They want vengeance. Now here the Lord gives them white robes and he, and he said to them that they should rest 
yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. In other words, he said, if I were to do that now, I'd have to add another resurrection. And he said, I'm going to hold off till this second resurrection. I'm going, to let you, I'm going to let you rest. I just want you to be at peace. That's what he said. Two things I'll close with. The answer to their request was delayed. It wasn't denied. It was simply delayed. I want to ask you this in a practical way. Have you been beseeching God for some certain thing in your life? Don't think God hadn't heard that. But oftentimes he delays till when? Till all things are in complete readiness. God doesn't answer until it's ready. Oh, listen, our schedule usually runs ahead of God's, doesn't it? We say, now, Lord, listen, I got to have this right now. The Lord said, no, you don't need it right now. Oh, God, but I'm going to lose everything. The Lord said, just hold on. I'm going to delay the answer. It's not time yet. It's not time. And when things are ready, then I'll step in. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So God's never off schedule, as we've often heard. God's not, listen, God's not deaf. Often he does delay that answer for specific reasons that are often only known to his sovereign mind. We may not know it, but he does learn to trust him, learn to rest. And then secondly, the answer is determined. Not only delayed, but it's determined. In other words, the tribulation saints are to be included with the Old Testament saints in the second resurrection. And the Lord said, listen, that some of the folks that are down there yet that are going to have their heads cut off, be shot in front of the firing squad, burned to death. And that's what the media's great hero, Mandela, and his outfit have done in South Africa. You know, it's strange when the media wants a hero, they can make one. But they willingly ignore the ruthless, vicious, ungodly, inhumane, uncivilized tactics of a fellow like Mandela who claims a vow to be a communist. You're, I didn't mean to get off on that, but you're welcome. That free of charge. We won't even take up an offering for that. In other words, God's saying, hey, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. There's some more that's going to get it. There's some more that are going to lay down their lives for me. And I don't want them to miss out on the glory of that resurrection moment. God doesn't respond then until things are in complete readiness. I'm glad that God is on schedule. And you don't have to worry about what's going on, folks. Oh, I know it's a dreadful time. And listen, I'm going to tell you, folks, we could be in war before the sun set. Uh, we could be in war before you get out of here. Our world is sitting on a powder keg right now. And some folks hadn't got enough biblical sense to realize that God's simply shaping things in this Middle East situation to bring to pass what he's already prophesied would take place. Do you realize that Israel right now, a nation, since 1948, God prophesied it centuries ago. He also prophesied there'd be a great ingathering and that'll be completed, uh, not in our time perhaps, but already you can see the movings in that direction. Israel, the government of Israel is expecting 100,000 Soviet Jews. They don't even have a place to put them. And the old prophet centuries ago said, he'll say to the north, give up, give up. 
Let them come home. And I'm going to tell you something. Before your eyes, the most thrilling thing I've ever seen in my life, ever lived through, is to see this book just page after page, step by step, just taking shape. I'm going to tell you, folks, if you're not saved today, you better not delay. Our Lord is coming. These things are moving on this earth faster than you could ever realize. Nations are aligning with nations. It's going to take place and overtake some who are not even ready. Some who are Christian people dabbling around, floundering around, letting the devil defeat them, letting themselves, the flesh defeat them. I'm going to tell you something. The time's running out on us, folks. It's time we awaken. We don't have long to get the job done. We don't have long to get the children in, to witness, to live, to worship for Christ. One thing is going to be missing in heaven that I've done most of my life. Evangelism is going to be missing in heaven. Winning people to Christ is going to be gone, Dr. Pyle. Be over there. Won't be any more preaching to get folks saved. All the saved are going to be gathered home. But you know there's some people right here on this earth, born again, children of God, they won't miss that because they've never done it while they're on the earth. They don't witness anybody. Never talked to anybody about Jesus. Never gave out a gospel tract. Tragic, isn't it? If there's anything we're going to do for Christ, folks, we better get with it. Time's running out. Let's bow our heads together as you stand with me for prayer.